Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the ancient world. Episode 35, On the Verge. The Roman Republic was less than a year old when the city found itself, once again, controlled by a single man. Publius Valerius Publicola had returned from the Battle of Silvia Arcia in triumph, the victorious Roman army at his back, and the body of his slain co-consul Brutus at his side. His first action was to arrange an elaborate state funeral for his former friend and colleague. Adopting a tradition taken from the Greeks, Publicola delivered a eulogy, praising Brutus's noble character, his bravery in the battle, and his ultimate sacrifice for the defense of Rome. But it wasn't long before Publicola's own dedication to the Republic came under scrutiny. The core reform of dual consulship was flouted when Publicola failed to schedule elections for Brutus's successor. Even more ominously, the consul began to raise a huge new residence atop the Velian Hill. By the time the work crew was installing the infinity pool and wet bar, the rumbles of Rome's citizens had begun to assume a Vesuvius-like quality. To his credit, Publicola took the hint. First, he demolished his new mansion in a single night. He followed up by calling an assembly of Rome's citizens. In their presence, he lowered the fasces, symbolizing his deference to the will of the Roman people. Then he launched into a fairly indignant speech. Can you find no man worthy enough to be above your suspicion? I am the bitterest enemy of the kings, yet I must fear your suspicion of wanting to be one myself. Does my reputation among you really hang on so light a thread? The house of Publius Valerius shall be no check upon your freedom. Your Velia shall be safe. I will not only move my house to level ground, but I will move it to the bottom of the hill, that you may dwell above the citizen you suspect. Let those dwell on the Velia who were considered truer friends of liberty than Publius Valerius. Ouch. Okay, we're sorry, Uncle Publius. 
Publicola's words and subsequent actions, including the calling of a new election, helped to diffuse the situation and restore the people's trust. It also didn't hurt that his family was both long-established and well-respected in Rome. During the remainder of his sole consulship, Publicola devoted himself to honoring Brutus's legacy and shoring up the foundations of the new republic. He led the Roman army a second time against Tarquin's recent allies, the Veientes, to discourage them from any further thoughts of aggression. He also repopulated the Roman Senate after its decimation under King Tarquin, increasing its size to 300 noble families and granting the body the senior legislative role in the Republic. Publicola also introduced several new pieces of legislation, including the exemption of the poor from taxation and the additional crowd-pleaser that anyone attempting to take power without a popular vote or restore the monarchy would have all their property forfeited. It was his role in enacting such new laws that moved Rome's citizens to first grant Publius Valerius the suffix of publicola, or friend of the people. When the election was held for Brutus's successor, the role was filled by Spurius Lucretius Trisipitinus, the original co-conspirator and former father of Lucretia. However, the aged noble died soon after and was succeeded by Marcus Horatius Pulvillus, heir to another prominent Roman family. While in theory, and later in fact, Roman consuls were equal in authority, during this early phase, Publicola was clearly the senior figure in the Republic. Near the end of 509 BC, the consuls received an unusual foreign delegation, seeking a non-aggression pact with Rome. The Phoenicians of Carthage had spent the past few decades aggressively defending their mastery of the central Mediterranean, mainly against threats from the colonies of Magna Graecia. The Spartans, in particular, had been notoriously intrusive. Darius's recent attempt to plant a colony too close to Carthage had resulted in his expulsion from North Africa and the founding of the new defensive Phoenician colony of Leptis Magna. But such open conflicts were the exception. Carthage's main strategy lay in a series of bilateral agreements, secured with local rulers throughout the region. These agreements guaranteed both the protection and free operation of Phoenician outposts in exchange for the promise of Carthaginian non-aggression against coastal cities. Publicola and Horatius, and the Romans in general, must have been of two minds on the matter. On the one hand, it was a mark of Rome's growing influence to even be approached for such a treaty, essentially formalizing its status as chief city of Latium. On the other hand, the content amounted to little more than a Phoenician protection racket. With the Republic barely established and Tarquin still lurking in the wings, the consuls decided that Rome could use all the allies— or at least non-enemies, it could get. The terms of the final agreement were strict for both sides, 
Romans were forbidden from even sailing past the region of Carthage, and on the off chance they were ever shipwrecked on the North African coast, they were only allowed to take what was needed for repairs and must be gone within five days. Carthaginians, in return, were forbidden from building any forts in Latin territory, and, if they entered such territory armed, were forbidden to stay the night. Such were the earliest foundations of the relationship between Rome and Carthage, one that would eventually develop into one of the greatest commercial and military rivalries of the Classical Age. The next year's consular elections resulted in the return of Publicola alongside the younger brother of the late spurious Lucretius Trisipitinus, Titus Lucretius Trisipitinus. The two leaders had barely been installed before Tarquin the Proud was once again knocking, forcefully, on Rome's gates. In recent months, the ex-king had made common cause with the powerful ruler of the Etruscan city of Clusium, Lars Porcena. Now both men had brought the Clusian army to force Tarquin's restoration as king. The details of the ensuing conflict are a bit difficult to untangle. Roman histories are full of stout defenses and courageous assaults, in particular by Publicola, who seems to have assumed sole command of Roman forces. As an example, there's the legend of the military hero Horatius Cocles, or One-Eyed, who held the Sublician Gate, alongside two other Romans, against the entire Clusian army until a vulnerable bridge over the Tiber could be destroyed. However, the nature of the war's conclusion begs a few questions. Under the terms of the eventual peace treaty, the Romans were forced to turn over noble hostages to the Clusians. Publicola was even forced to surrender his daughter, Valeria. Rome was also compelled to cede territory to Tarquin's other Etruscan allies, the Veientes. But, for whatever reason, the ex-king was not placed back on the Roman throne. This fact, and the harsh terms imposed on the Romans, leads some historians to suggest that, in actuality, Rome had been defeated and was now under the direct control of Lars Porcena. Again, all of this is a bit murky. But sources do agree that the following year, Clusian forces were defeated near the Latin city of Aresia by a coalition led by the Greek tyrant of nearby Cumae. If Rome had fallen under Porcena's power, this defeat may have been sufficient to break his hold. The Clusian king is recorded as sending emissaries to the city again in 506 BC to make the case for Tarquin's return. This time, Roman legates, or generals, were dispatched to Clusium with a clear message. Tarquin would never, ever be restored to the Roman throne. Ever. Period. Actually, exclamation point. In fact, the legates continued, the Romans, quote, had made up their minds to open their gates even to an enemy sooner than to a king. And if the Clusian king wanted to maintain good relations with his up-and-coming neighbor, he should really, really just let the matter drop. 
Porsena apparently got the message. Not only did he immediately stop collaborating with Tarquin, but he even kicked the ex-king out of Clusium for good measure. Porsena also returned the Roman hostages, as well as Roman lands previously ceded to Vey. Whatever brief victory he may have won in 508 BC, Porsena had apparently decided it was preferable to have Rome as an ally rather than an enemy. Nothing if not persistent, Tarquin would make one final bid for the throne in 498 BC. On this occasion, he'd lead a Latin army raised by his new son-in-law, Octavius Mamilius, ruler of the city of Tusculum. The ensuing battle would pit the forces of the Latin League, under Mamilius, the now-aged Tarquin, and his surviving son Titus, against a Roman army led by the Republic's first appointed dictator, Aulus Postumius Albus. What's that? You'd also like a dramatic setting? How about Lake Regillus, lying in the spent cone of an extinct volcano midway between Rome and Tusculum? Without getting too much into the ins and outs of the conflict, of which there were many, including rumors of the gods Castor and Pollux fighting as Roman horsemen, the Romans thoroughly trounced the Latin army, killing Mamilius and driving Tarquin back into exile. Old, bitter, and exhausted, the last king of Rome would finally die a short time later in Cumae, his dreams of a return to power unfulfilled. The Roman aftermath included the first military triumph for a dictator and the raising of the Temple of Castor and Pollux in the Roman Forum, where its remains still stand today. Getting back to 507 BC, another argument for Porsena's possible conquest of Rome, or at the very least a poor Roman showing in the conflict, was the precipitous decline in Publicola's popularity. He was apparently overlooked in the consular elections of 506 and 505 BC, during which time Rome came under threat once again from the Sabines. With his brother Marcus Valerius Volusus serving as co-consul in 506 BC, Publicola took part in two Roman victories that were effective in repulsing the invasion. During 505 BC, while the Sabines were debating whether or not to continue the war, Publicola managed to befriend one of the most powerful Sabine nobles, Attus Clausus. In fact, Publicola even convinced Clausus to move to Rome, along with his extended family and dependents, all 5,000 of them. Look, you guys can crash at my place for a while, but to be honest, it's probably better long-term if you settle along the nearby Anio River, which is what they did. Attis Clausus, who took the Romanized name Appius Claudius, quickly became a prominent Roman citizen, then senator, and, within ten years, consul. Without getting into the details, it's safe to say that Claudius and his heirs would have a major long-term impact on both the Republic and the Empire to follow. In 504 BC, Publius Valerius Publicola was elected to his fourth and final consulship, alongside his former colleague Titus Lucretius Trisipitinus. 
No doubt upset by Publicola's luring of Claudius to Rome, the Sabines once again marched on the city. As consul, Publicola led Roman forces to a decisive victory over their rivals, one that earned him the first formal military triumph of the new republic. The next year, shortly after handing the reins of power to his successors, Publius Valerius Publicola died, peacefully of old age, a rarity for a prominent Roman leader of either the kingdom or early republic. In contrast to Brutus, the republic's stern father figure, Publicola had been the man left to translate Brutus's program into a stable functioning system, then skillfully guide it through its first few years of existence. While Brutus represented the supreme Roman virtue of heroic self-sacrifice, Publicola exemplified the other great traits of a Roman leader. Bravery in battle, skill in diplomacy, sympathy for the people's grievances, and, above all, the willingness to hand over power without reservation at the people's will. Unsurprisingly, all these traits made Publicola one of the most beloved figures in early Roman history. Livy records that at the time of his death, Publicola was universally considered to be the ablest man in Rome, in both the conduct of war and the arts of peace. Due to his family's surprisingly humble means, he was buried at public expense, with each Roman citizen contributing a token amount. Befitting his crucial role as defender of the young republic, Publicola was granted the supreme honor of burial within the city walls, at the base of the Velian Hill that his family called home. Which seems like as good a place as any to bid a fond farewell to the Roman Republic and return to the lively, chaotic, and always intriguing lands of late 6th century Greece. The few short years between the institution of democracy in Athens in 506 BC and the Ionian Revolt of 499 BC were a welcome calm before the coming storm. Sparta's expansionist ambitions had been temporarily curtailed, or at least soon would be after Cleomenes's failed attempt to restore Hippias to power. In Athens, enthusiastic converts to the new democracy rubbed elbows with resentful former elites. Unsatisfied with their new, i.e. equal, place in the order of things, a growing number of Eupachardae began to solicit Persian aid in overturning the revolution. In response, Democrats smeared the backsliders by calling them Medizers, in other words, Athenians who sympathized with the Medes or Persians. The Greeks never really bothered to distinguish between the two. Athens soon followed her forced colonization of Euboea with a similar push at Salamis. Both were clear signals of the ebullient pride and power of the new democracy. Back at home, the revolution was further entrenched by stripping traditional offices, including the archonship, of their remaining vestiges of power, limiting office holders to terms of a single year, and making all positions elected by lot. The only leadership post that permitted both long-term occupation and election based on a proposed platform was, strangely enough, the generalship. 
Unlike other public offices, the Athenians decided that military leadership should be based on experience, and that the polis would be ill-served by rotating men in and out of the position. While vigilant Democrats kept one wary eye on the progress of the reforms and the other on potential Persian collaborators in their midst, Persia herself remained mysteriously, ominously silent. Much like Cyrus the Great's lost decade, we're tempted to fill in the blanks with the standard imperial repertoire. Consolidation, administration, and, of course, that easy time killer, undocumented eastern campaigns. But the truth is, we really don't know much about what was going on in the empire during this period. And that's even considering the fact that the empire now butted, literally, right up against the foothills of Mount Olympus. We do know a set of cold, if impressive, statistics. By around this time, it's estimated that 50 million people, or around 45% of the world's population, lived under Darius's rule, making the Persian Empire the largest empire in history in terms of percentage of world population. In terms of land, the empire encompassed some 1 million square miles of territory, spanning three continents. The conquests and administrative policies of Darius, who, spoiler alert, will end up ruling the Persian Empire for 35 years, set the stage for the next 200 years of continuous family rule. So that's where things are at, and that, roughly, is where they're headed. At least until the late 4th century BC and a young man named Alexander. In 500 BC, the pebble that would start the coming avalanche was finally rolled. The roll E was Aristagoras, nephew of Histiaeus and tyrant of the Ionian Greek city of Miletus. Like his uncle, Aristagoras was both a competent ruler and loyal to the Persians who'd installed him. Arriving in Sardis, he approached the satrap Artaphernes with a plan. At the time, the most prosperous of the Greek islands was Naxos, whose towering Mount Zeus served to trap clouds and bring down the heavy rainfall needed for intensive agriculture. Like all Greek islands, Naxos was also steeped in legend. It was here that the ancient hero Theseus had abandoned Princess Ariadne of Crete after she'd helped him to kill the Minotaur and hear that Dionysus, god of wine, and the island's divine protector, had then fallen in love with the princess. In 524 BC, the former Naxian tyrant Ligdemus, an ally of Polycrates of Samos, had been overthrown and replaced by an oligarchy. Since then, Naxos had grown to become the hub of the region's maritime trade. Also, as Aristagoras pointed out, Naxos would make a convenient stepping stone for any Persian invasion force crossing the Aegean. Sweetening the deal, the tyrant spun a tale of spiraling class warfare and a traditional aristocracy clamoring for Persian aid. Aristagoras had the connections, Artaphernes had the ships, it was a win-win, a no-brainer, a slam dunk. So how about it? What Aristagoras didn't tell Artaphernes was that his own position back in Miletus had become problematic. 
The Malaysians had become utterly obsessed with news of the democratic revolution back in Athens. They'd even started to agitate for a similar program to be instituted in their own polis. Aristagoras needed to make a big splash, score a big win, in short, do something that would recapture the admiration and, through that, the loyalty of his people. To his immense relief, Artaphernes agreed to support his plan. But that was about the last thing that would go right in the whole affair. The actual assault on Naxos was a complete debacle, and the tyrant found himself at increasing odds with the Persian commander Megabates, who just happened to be the cousin of Artaphernes. When the commander reported back to the satrap, likely blaming the failure on Greek lies and incompetence, Artaphernes wasted no time in announcing a new opening in the Milesian tyrant department. Displaying the contortional ability so common among Greek elites, Aristagoras countered by announcing that there was no greater supporter of the concept of democracy than he. Miletus should totally, totally have a democracy. In fact, you know what? Why limit things to Miletus? Every Ionian Greek city should have a democracy, and the sooner the better. It's not clear how this development meshes with Herodotus' tale of the shaved-headed slave and Histias' secret message, but either way, with the gas poured and match lit, the ensuing explosion could hardly have been a surprise. Democracies spontaneously sprang up all along the Anatolian coast. Those tyrants who escaped the stones and swords of their former countrymen were forced to flee for their lives to the security of Sardis. Artaphernes was not amused. Engaging the likely response to open rebellion, Aristagoras had plenty of Persian history to draw on, none of it very comforting. While the Ionian Peleus drafted their constitutions and formalized their new political structures, the former tyrant turned his mind to the practical matter of preparing for war. With the same audacity and cleverness he'd brought to his earlier plan of seizing Naxos, Aristagoras dispatched a trusted officer to travel up the coast to where the Persian fleet lay at anchor. There, his agent met with the senior Ionian officers commanding the ships and pitched them his plan. The following morning, the harbor sat empty. Quickly, silently, the entire Persian fleet had been seized and put to sea, bound for Miletus. It was a staggering success, to be followed in 498 BC by one even more epic. In response to Aristagoras's call for support, the Athenians and Eritreans dispatched their fleets to make a bold and ambitious strike into the very heart of enemy territory. With the bulk of Persian forces off besieging Miletus, the Greeks attacked the provincial capital of Sardis and burned it to the ground. It's hard to imagine a greater act of Greek daring or Persian humiliation. Artaphernes would survive the assault by taking refuge in the ancient citadel. When he emerged into the smoke and fires of his former palace, there could be no doubt. Greece and Persia were now at war. It was only the nature of the war that differed to each side. 
For Persia, the conquest of Greece was the next logical step in their program of empire building. For Greece, Persian conquest represented something far more existential. The snuffing out of their unique culture and an end to their hard-fought freedom. It was a cause they would risk everything for, one that would define them and usher in their coming golden age. So that's where things stood as the 5th century BC dawned over the Mediterranean. The dividing line between ancient and classical worlds is, of course, an artificial one, a matter of convenience rather than fact. Rome, Carthage, Persia, and the cities of Greece each was already heir to thousands of years of civilization. The Persian king still inscribed his laws in the same languages spoken by Sargon of Akkad and the rival Elamites of Susa. The Carthaginians still worshipped the gods of their Canaanite homeland and recalled when their cedar wood was coveted by the first pharaohs of Egypt. Classical Greeks could still, on occasion, stumble across the artistic treasures of Minoan Crete and marvel at scenes from an instantly recognizable Aegean world. The past didn't go anywhere. It wasn't really even the past. It still isn't. Next episode, yes, there will be one. Technically, I've covered what I set out to cover— the first human civilizations, down through 500 BC. So next episode will be a bit of a grab bag. Part recap of the world of 500 BC, a few side discussions on some cultures of interest, and a bit of a hint on what comes next. All this next time on The Ancient World. <laughs>